how do you come to a settled, justified conviction about the truth of a testimony? How does someone go from not listening to Jesus to embracing him as God's final, decisive, saving word to the world? Or put another way, what causes a person to move from skepticism about Jesus to having faith in him? That's the question John Piper answers in this episode of Light and Truth. This sermon was originally preached at Bethlehem Baptist Church on May 5th, 1996. The first night I spoke at Bethlehem Baptist Church, July 1980, my first evening message was entitled, Life is Not Trivial. This is your life. I took a text from Deuteronomy. This is your life. Choose life. Christianity is not trivial. It is extremely serious business. Not, don't confuse the word serious with sour or glum. Serious has to do with intensity in pursuit of something. And it does not say here, don't neglect your arthritis or don't neglect your dandelions. Or don't neglect your spinach. It's not a negative thing he's calling us to neglect. At least for me, spinach is negative. And dandelions are negative and arthritis will be negative. He's not saying, make sure you spend a lot of time thinking about those negative, painful things in your life. It's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying, don't neglect your salvation. Don't neglect your steak dinners. Don't neglect your butterfinger blizzards. Don't neglect your night skies full of stars in the boundary waters. Don't neglect your cozy warm bed at night. Don't neglect the smiles of that new little baby. This is not a hard command. Don't neglect your joy. And it's deadly serious. Christians, Christians are people who are in blood earnest about their joy. We will gouge out our eyes in obedience to Jesus lest we lose our joy if we have to. So don't mistake me when I say this text beckons you to a serious way of living that I am beckoning you to a sad way of living. I'm saying, let's really get serious about joy. Salvation means joy. We are saved from hell, saved from death, saved from Satan. That's joy. Saved into God, into heaven, into hope. Salvation is all positive. So when he says, don't neglect this, it's like old Jeremy Taylor's statement. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. God threatens terrible things. There will be no escape for those who neglect their joy. Serious business. 
And he's got to talk like that because there's a lot of suicidal competitors to our salvation when it comes to joy. A lot of them. Hundreds of them. A lot of competitors being offered. Come on. This, this is what will really save you from boredom. This is what will really save you from insignificance. This is what will really save you from poverty. Come on, come on. And at that moment, we need to hear a word. Don't neglect this, this joy. This cataract, an avalanche of goodness flowing out from God through the cross of Jesus Christ. At that moment, we need to hear loud and clear. Come back from the suicidal competitors of salvation. So it's serious. Serious business. Don't neglect your great salvation. Don't neglect being loved by God. Don't neglect being forgiven. Don't neglect being accepted. Don't neglect being strengthened by God. Don't neglect being helped and guided by God. Don't neglect the love of the cross where your sins were nailed there forever. Don't neglect the free gift of righteousness that comes to you by faith so that you can clothe yourselves with it and walk right into the presence of a holy God and meet a smile rather than a frown of wrath. Don't neglect a risen Christ who's alive today and who offers his fellowship to you this morning for your friendship forever. Don't neglect the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't neglect the fellowship of the saints. Don't neglect all the good things that are summed up in this word, great salvation. That's the message this morning. Beware of neglecting such a great salvation because to neglect it, there's no escape. There's no escape. It's very serious business. The opposite of neglecting, a little rehearsal from last week, the opposite of neglecting is found in verse 1. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. And what we have heard is this great salvation. That's what we talked about last week. Now this week, I want to move to the end of the paragraph and focus on verses 3 and 4 and ask the question, what are these verses here for? How do they buttress the statement that it's a contemptible thing to neglect our great salvation? And the answer is, these verses are designed not so much to show that our salvation is great, but that our salvation is true. There are two reasons why you might neglect something. One is, you look at it and it's not great. And you say, well, it's not great. I'm not interested. And so you turn to what you feel is great. And you give yourself to that. That's one reason. The other reason is, you look at something and it might look great, but you have reason to believe it isn't true. It's a, it's a dream great. And so you turn away from that too. So we need two things to happen. We need to be persuaded that it's a great salvation so that we turn away from all the lesser things in life. And believe me, life is one colossal decision of what to neglect. At least my life feels that way. The ministry, nobody's following me around during the day. 
tell me what to do. Sometimes I come to the end and I say, oh, I wish I had somebody. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Hour by hour. Lord, just come. What book to read? What person to call? What thing to write? What letters to write? What the thousand possibilities in your life and my life. And we make choices to neglect hundreds of them every hour. What people will you not talk to today? What will you not work on today? What will you not read today? What will you not phone today? So, believe me, neglect is very important. It's very important to nail down what you're going to neglect. And it ought to be the lesser things, not the most important things. So you got to decide what's great. And then the second thing is, you have to believe it's true. If it were great and not true in your mind, you would neglect it. And if it were true and not great in your mind, you would neglect it. It needs to be both true and great. These two verses, 3 and 4 of Hebrews 2, are designed to address the latter problem, namely, is it true? Is it true? These are verses about confirmation of the salvation. Let's read them again. Verse 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation... After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, through the Lord, just like the Old Testament message was through angels in verse 2, through the Lord, come back to that. It was confirmed, made firm, solid, you know, trustworthy, made firm to us by those who heard, that is the eyewitnesses who heard the Lord. The apostles. Verse 4. God also bearing witness with them, that is with the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now the point of that paragraph, I mean those two verses, is to say that the great salvation that we should not neglect has been sufficiently confirmed among us so that it is contemptible to neglect it. That's the point of those two verses. Now, this is not an easy thing to deal with. I want to pose a question for you and try to tackle it in the last few minutes here. And the question is, how do you come to a settled, justified conviction about the truth of a testimony? A testimony. Something you didn't see with your own eyes. And even if you saw it with your own eyes, I could ask the same question because you might be deluded. How do you decide when to credit a testimony? Lawyers and judges and juries have to do this all day long down at the Hanman County Courthouse. How do you do that? How does it happen? How does evidence work? Why does one pile of evidence cause one person to be absolutely persuaded he's guilty? And another pile, I mean the same pile of evidence, cause another person or group to say, not guilty, insufficient evidence. What is it in the mind that works like that? Now, what you need to see here first, before we tackle that question head on, is that there are four witnesses in these two verses. 
to the great salvation. Let's just look at them quickly and then pose that question. Number one is God the Father himself in verse 3. The wording is important. It says, it was, that is, this great salvation was at the first spoken through the Lord. Now, the speaker here is God the Father. The channel is the Lord. The Lord is the go-between. I know some of your versions don't get it that plain, but that's the way it is because the parallel in verse 2, the same wording, spoken through angels... Here, spoken through the Lord, shows that God is the speaker in both cases. So, witness number one, God the Father spoke a great salvation, which is no surprise because chapter one, verse one, in many and various ways, he spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. And that's what he's doing here. God is speaking salvation through the Son. So the second witness now is the Son. Jesus Christ, the go-between, the mediator. It was at first spoken, namely by God, now through the Lord Jesus. The earthly Jesus as he spoke, as he lived, as he healed, as he cast out demons, as he stilled the storm, as he died, as he rose, as he commissioned, he was being and speaking the great salvation from the Father. So he's witness number two. God the Father leaves his stamp on the testimony. God the Son leaves his stamp on the testimony. And at every stage of the witnessing, we are at a crisis judgment. Will we yield to the validity of the testimony or will we doubt the validity of the testimony? That's the tough question. How do you come to that kind of conviction? Witness number three, verse three, near the end. It, that is the great salvation, was confirmed to us by those who heard. Those who heard what? Answer, the Lord Jesus, as he spoke God's word of salvation. So these are the eyewitnesses or ear witnesses. These are the people who, who heard him teach the Sermon on the Mount, who heard him say, peace be still to the raging sea, who heard him rebuke a fever, who heard him say, move out of here, demons, who heard him commission the apostles after he arose from the dead. These are the eyewitnesses who saw the very Son of God. They had come to this church or these churches of the Hebrews and they had preached and testified. And this writer says, they made the great salvation firm. There's a firmness here on the basis of the eyewitness accounts. So that's, that's number three. Witness number four is God himself again. He will have the first word and he will have the last word. You see that in verse four? God also bearing witness with them, that is with the apostles, the eyewitnesses, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God spoke a salvation into the world. He mediated it through his son, Jesus Christ. His son gathered around him authoritative 
spokesmen and eyewitnesses and commission them to be his witnesses. Now, they go out and preach at churches like this one. They hear that God spoke, the son spoke, the eyewitnesses speak, and they've got three testimonies. And God says, I'll add one more. And he comes in with signs, wonders, miracles, and spiritual gifts poured out on the church. As if to say, it was enough to hear my eyewitnesses, but I will add now another confirming witness of my own. Now, here's the question. What do you do with that? How does that, how do four testimonies like that produce justifiable conviction in the mind? Because there are many people who hear such evidence, such testimony, and they're not persuaded. They don't believe that salvation is real, and they don't believe it's great. But some hear it, and they do believe it's real. And they do believe it's great. And they'll lay down their lives for it. What, what happens here? And it's not just a problem with this. It's a problem with every testimony you hear. If God says, I have come to save, you could say, huh, maybe that's Satan talking. Or if Jesus says, I am the savior of the world, you could say, you're a megalomaniac. You are really out of it. You are a deluded prophet. You are pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. Or if the eyewitnesses say, we saw him, we saw him. He was risen from the dead. He was a man of love. He was authentic through and through. He was authoritative. Believe him. We saw him. We knew him. We could say, you were hallucinating. It's all a conspiracy. And if God does signs and wonders, there's no problem handle that. Satan can do those, right? Satan does sign, lying signs and wonders. And there's magic in the world. White magic, black magic. So the point, doubt is always possible, right? You, doubt is always an option. So what happens so that genuine, justifiable, valid conviction happens in a mind in the face of a witness? How does that work? This is very difficult. And it's not just far away out there. It's right here in this room right now. People battling whether, number one, to believe it's true. And number one, number two, is it great? And yes, we heard a little bit of a testimony. But what do I do with it? What if it doesn't compel me? It is not an easy question. This text does not answer the question entirely. I believe it gives a very crucial part of the answer, and it's a very simple part, namely, conviction arises justifiably in the heart in proportion to witnesses that are reliable and clustered. So what we have here are four of them. God witnesses, Jesus witnesses, the apostles and the eyewitnesses witness, and then God adds miraculous testimony again. And that's presented to this church. And, and this writer says, now you will not escape if you neglect such a great salvation because that's enough. That's enough. And if they would have said, I don't think it's enough.
That's the end of it. What, what can you do? It's just, you wait till you get to heaven and God, hear God say, it was enough. It was enough. It's a pretty scary thing. So let me try to describe in closing the other part of the answer that's not in the text that I'm, I'm going to commend to you in closing that I take from other texts like 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6 or Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27 or Matthew 16, 17. Other passages in scripture that talk about how conviction emerges, rises in the soul. You have a mind, a heart over here. This is, this say me, John Piper, and you have a witness or two or three or four witnesses to something. Could be a great salvation, could be a car accident or whatever. Somebody saying that they saw your son or your wife cheating on you. You gonna believe them? It's all kinds of testimonies that come to you and you gotta believe, you gotta decide. False, true. So what happens? This mind is cleaned, humbled, rightly oriented. This testimony is clear concerning the historical, spiritual, moral dimensions of the reality testified to. And when a mind prepared like that and a testimony prepared like that come together, and it might be happening right now in this room. It might be. I pray that it is. There, all I know is to say, this happens in the mind. Coherence, harmony. And you say, yes. And you're saved. Let's pray. Father, as we close now, we realize that we're right on the brink of something extraordinary that might be happening right here in our midst. Some people who have struggled maybe all their life with whether to yield to the testimony of the greatness of the salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray that for me and all of us, you, Father, by the Holy Spirit, would be orienting our minds aright, cleansing our minds, and humbling our minds so that the all-sufficient testimony that we have in the Word would fit our minds and we would believe. This is Light and Truth, God-centered preaching to help you see Christ clearly and treasure Him truly. I'm your host, Dan Kruver. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, John Piper will preach a sermon titled, We Do See Jesus the eighth sermon in our 12-part series, Listen to Jesus. I hope you'll join us. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.